Hello and welcome again to the famous CFC podcast where each episode offers a deep dive into the wonderful history of Chelsea Football Club. My name's Gary Barone and I'm joined as usual by club historian Rick Glanville. Yeah, and today, Gary, we're looking at a seismic period in Chelsea history, the 1990s. Really how our club rose from basket case to trailblazer, changing English and arguably European football forever. But don't take our word for it, though our word is worth it, uh, because we have the people behind a brand new documentary called Poundland, The Battle for Stamford Bridge, who've brought the whole story together in sounds and pictures. We do indeed, as our guests are the documentary filmmakers behind it, Kazahal and Andy Wells. As you'll hear, Rick, you had the pleasure of advising them on the project. I did, and it was a great experience. They they really know their football and they're passionate about Chelsea's role in changing English football in the 1990s. Well, the dock will air in the UK straight after the second leg against Auckland, so they're as desperate for a great result as we are, <laughs> and likely around the globe after that. But without further ado, here's our chat with Kajla Hull and Andy Wells. We'll just take a quick break to pay for the East End and be back before you know it. Are you missing out on your favorite shows because it's not available in your region? Trying to keep your private time private? Well, let me introduce you to NordVPN. If you're bored of the U.S. Netflix, why not just take it for a spin in the U.K.? Using NordVPN and a click of a button, you can do just that. No need to travel to Japan for your favorite anime when NordVPN brings it right to you. With 5,000 plus servers, no show is out of your reach. Using my link, nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue. You can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan with one month free. We all love the binge, but privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. They've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. Don't forget, there's literally no risk to you with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue a refund, and you can pretend the entire situation never happened check it out my link nordvpn.com forward slash london is blue to get your subscription started today so fellas i am fascinated to see your show poundland the battle for stanford bridge because rick's told me a bit about it but what would be your best pitch to to chelsea fans and what broadly is it all about um <clears throat> good question so it's sort of about the micro and the macro is probably the best way to, to describe it. So bigger picture wise, it's how f English football changed in the 1990s, sort of seen through the prism of Chelsea Football Club. So the reason we call it Poundland is because we begin the film in 1982 with Ken Bates buying the club for a pound. Great pun. Great pun. Yeah, like it. And then we kind of go back to 1970 and we go back to the glory years, Chelsea's glory years. So we see Chelsea in their pomp. And then you go through this journey. And again, it, it mirrors English football. I mean, when Rick and I were talking, you know, months ago, I was saying it. if you look at Chelsea, it's the story of English football writ large. It's it, Chelsea don't do thing by halves you know it's you know they're not just a glamorous team they are the most glamorous team you know they have Raquel Welsh turning up at Stamford Bridge <laughs> then you get into the 1980s and you get the demise of English football and again Chelsea's demise is mm. chronic and <laughs> you know you asked me the other week Rick about you know what was I surprised by 
I hadn't actually appreciated how close Chelsea were to going bust or losing yeah. their home. I yeah. mean, it's it's dire. It really is. Not that, you know, I need to remind you got you fellas, but as an outsider, you realize how bad things were. And then you get the renaissance of English football post-Italia 90. And people buy into English football. And again, it's it's a line that you come out with, Rick, where you say, you know, you must remember we were viewed as pariahs as football fans. And then suddenly football gets exciting. For people start, you know, the middle classes become interested in football. And suddenly it's box office, as, as Rob Beasley put it. And Chelsea, they they not only run with it, they're at the forefront of this change in terms of how they evolve as a club and how they involve as a, as a team. Um, so, again, it's it, they go to the extreme. And I think that's the fascination with, with this story, because what you've got is, when we get to the 90s, you've obviously got Matthew Harding versus Ken Bates. You've got this boardroom battle. <laughs> and at this time, you've got to remember, you know, the Jack Walkers of this world. We, you know, they were there second-hand car selling or factory owners, but they kind of were the local lad made good. And they were the last of those sort of owners before English football's top flight became, you know, the uh, you know the super rich and uh, billionaires and oligarchs took over. So you've got this person, Matthew Harding, coming in and he's got it battling for the, for the soul of the club in many ways with Ken Bates, who again is, you know, this old proprietor who's, uh, again, a sort of the vanguard of, or it's all one of the last vestiges of these, these old style owners. So that, in a roundabout way, um, to answer your question, Gary, is it's kind of, that is the story of how English football changed and how we emerged from the, you know, this, this journey that we went on in the space of 25 years. And what's beautiful about the Chelsea story is that obviously it's bookended because you start in 1970 with the FA Cup win, and then you end in 1997 with the FA Cup win. And for those 26 years in between, um, there hasn't been much success, apart from the um, Cup Winners' Cup final, obviously. So it's, again, you know, it's telling that story of English football through its sort of doggy, dark days, and then emerging, blinking into this new land of the 90s, Britain, where there seems genuine hope, you know, politically, culturally, and, and football as well. So that was a, a very long-winded way of answering your question, I'm afraid. Brilliantly put, and I'm really, I'm even more excited now to see it because I agree with you. I think Chelsea have always done things uh, differently, and yeah. in, in that kind of um, bloated fashion in both ways. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you're saying about how you looked a lot at uh, what you might call the 60s and 70s iconography and cultural heritage that Chelsea was trying to rekindle really in the 1990s yeah. with the likes of Zola and Hullet and, and people like that, uh, which you which I know you cover a lot. But apart from an excuse to feature the late Raquel Welsh, <laughs> <laughs> why was that so important to your storytelling? Um, I th It's a good point because we did discuss for a long time starting the story in 1982, yeah. which would have been the most obvious point in in many, many ways. But I think you needed to see so how can you buy a football club for a one pound? And I think you have to see where that club was. You have to see what's come before to understand the, the demise, really, to fully appreciate where, you know, the, how, how great to fall it was, really. Yeah. Um, so also, I think 
yeah, just to understand a little bit about the history and the and the site in West London, because again, it's it's a unique location. Again, which as you know, as you, as you brilliantly said, it, it's a blessing and a curse. So I think all those things. Yeah, you could have made this film without going back to 1970, but I think it would have been a waste because other people we interviewed talked about this 1970s team and it's almost like these ghosts of 1970. Definitely. And then finally, it's 97. And again, I think it was Rob Beasley said, finally, we had new heroes. You know, the, the, the 1970 were this benchmark. And finally, we had new fans. You know, younger fans had a new generation of players to idolise. Definitely. I think it's a good point, that, Andy, as well, is that, um, you know, the, the London idea, because this is a London story as well. Mm. So it ties in with what was happening in London in the 90s, and the you know, the deregulation of the market in the city, the city getting involved in football, which, you know, mm -hmm. these two completely separate worlds. And I think that's why Bates and Harding helped in to tell that story, because you can view uh, Bates as sort of, you know, the old style Tory supporter, what yeah. we expect of a chairman. And then suddenly you get this guy out of the, the as we said, the deregulated city, you know, not what you expect. And you know, yeah. New Labour's biggest friends. donor. Yeah, yeah, New Labour's biggest donor. And just 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 throwing everything up in the air of what you expect football to be. And with the same thing that was happening with the regeneration of London and areas that were coming up, Canary Wharf, all that sort of stuff, it all feeds into this story. So we think that, yeah, you know, if you're a Chelsea fan, I'm sure you're going to love this. But if you're not a Chelsea fan, uh, first of all, why are you listening to this? But <laughs> secondly, you know, you would still find, uh, you know, something in this will probably resonate with your club. And the rise of Britpop as well, yeah. We, we've, we've already touched on the the rivalry between Bates and Superfan Harding. Um they're often at each other's throats, but does it make any more sense now than it did at the time? I think one of the interesting things for us for it was how that rivalry was played out. Um, now, you know, if you grow up in the internet age, you will find it almost impossible to understand just how big and powerful newspapers were and, you mm -hmm. know, the sports section of the newspaper. That was pretty much the only place where, unless you were going to pay pound fifty to club call per minute, whatever it was, <laughs> <laughs> get, the, get the view of the club. This was the only place, you know, where you would find out what was happening on a day-to-day -day basis. So you might wait for your fanzine in a week or two weeks' time, but this was the only place you were really going to find out. And the way that they played that out with their own, um, let's say, friends in the press um, <laughs> was was just a, a great way of showing what was happening at the club. And we've, we've delved into that quite deeply. We've got, I guess, a person on either side of the story who was involved in writing, you know, Harding's side and uh, Bates' side into, into the documentary. And I think you, that's an interesting point for me. Also, I think from having gone down the route of, you know, getting all the archive and, and getting further and further into the story, I think it's obviously quite clear, maybe it was obvious at the time, that both protagonists could see the way the wind was blowing mm -hmm. in terms of football. I'm not doubting they they were supporters and they they love Chelsea. I'm not not doubting that for one second, but I think they realised what was coming. Yeah. Um, and it's as a fan, you know, you just turn up every week, you turn up every season. But I think um, for people in their position and maybe with their power and money, um, they had um, yeah, they, they had an eye on uh, a bigger prize maybe. And do you? I've had a a short sneak preview. Mm. And um, you've dug up some great memorabilia and rare footage that really sort of sum up 
the various eras. Where did you find all this material? And what, talk about some of the things that you think are less commonly viewed. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so different archives, basically. I mean, in terms of the, the, the video archives. So, um, yeah, there is a, there's a lot of collections out there. Yeah, the, the Swiss film's good, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, the Swiss I mean, film, yes. We've got some great stuff from Swiss television. Um, it's just nice. glorious. So that there are little pockets of, with the um, the East Stand being knocked down and rebuilt. Again, I think there's some things in there that a lot of Chelsea fans maybe ha- won't have seen before. Mm-hmm. And you do a double take when you see them. You, you know, it's like it's a view of Stamford Bridge that you know I've certainly never seen before. Um, and then personal archive as well from from different supporters. Um, and I think it, I think it's really key. Actually, I think it's really important because I think it, it, it really gives you it adds another texture to the story. Um, and when you see some of those images of Stamford Bridge in the sort of you know the eighties, when there's you know fifty fans in the you know on, in the away end on the North Terrace, <laughs> and you know the, the crowd are quite Spartan, you see the crumbling terracing, you realise how massive you know how big a change. Yeah. Uh, football is undergone because because the other thing we go into is the, is the Taylor report, of course. Yes, uh, and and how it's so it's not just the the team that changed; it's actually the the environment around Stamford Bridge that was has physically changed in in during that time. And you actually see that in the film. You see this bowl suddenly by the end of the film. It's you know there's a new stadium, um, sort of uh, pretty much built in its place. You guys are both steeped in football and very experienced program making, but. How did your previous take on Chelsea evolve when you were making this? I mean, what did you learn about the club that maybe you hadn't known before? That's a good, that's a good question, isn't it? Because, mm. Kaz, you obviously used to cover Chelsea yeah. in the previous guys in radio as a radio producer, I think. And so I you did, were often yeah. at Stamford Bridge. Yeah, so I, I spent quite a bit of time there in, probably from about 1994 to about 99. I was there for the Cup Winners' Cup final. Um, as well, and a few of the other key games, and spent a lot of time standing in that tunnel um, with a little tape recorder for Radio Five Live, waiting for players to come and <laughs> I hated that job. <laughs> waiting for players to come to stop and speak to me, it was horrible. Um, but you know, that's where you get to know who the nice players are and who 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 yes. aren't. But I've got to say, most of the Chelsea guys in that later period were, were really good. Your banker every time was was Zola. everyone else said no he would always say yes you know so you'd kind of like it it, it actually come out almost expecting you to ask him um but so so i had a view of chelsea at that period i suppose my 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 sort of um learning with it really was probably earlier so i remember going to chelsea and probably the first time i went was probably not until about 1988 something like that Mm -hmm. um so i mean it was just it looks I remember it looking bad, but, uh, you know, but then every football ground looked bad. You know, I'm a forest fan, so I remember where I used to stand, there was like one toilet for probably 10,000 people. And <laughs> this was this was probably, like like um, Andy said, it just seemed Chelsea just to do it at, in extreme. <laughs> so it's even worse. <laughs> Somehow it was even worse. And you were so far away from the pitch. That was the other thing that I remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess didn't realise just how close uh, the club was in, in, in folding. And it could have folded. You know, and and that's the role that Ken played. You know, and for whatever you might think about him, beating off the about, developers, exactly. Yeah, his bloody mindedness mm. and all the things that probably annoy people about him were the were the attributes you needed mm. um, to make sure the club was still here. 
just say you didn't you approached Ken did you get an interview with him in the end we spoke we spoke to Ken uh we had, well we spoke to Ken a few times um he's out in Monaco most of the time he was on his balcony drinking set champagne when I spoke to him um he you know he 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 did Ken's view is that he doesn't do any interviews now unless they're live um now obviously for a documentary it's not going to work for us so we couldn't make that work which is a shame but you know he, he knows all about it we talked about it we told him what we we're going to do um i'm sure he'll see it at some point and i'll probably get a letter <laughs> <laughs> you did talk to obviously his oppo um colin hutchinson and sadly obviously yeah. matthew not around um uh, obviously uh i mean passed away so long ago but you spoke to you spoke to Colin. Any others that um, Chelsea fans might uh, be interested to hear from that you you spoke to? I know lots of fans that people all know as well. Are we talking about in the film? Mm, yeah. Uh, well, who else? So Michael Dubris, and uh, that was a good you know perspective as well. What we, what we try and do with these films is what we try and have not just talking heads for the sake of it who are experts, but people who were there and who were part of the story, mm. uh, either covering the games uh or the ones who are in the games or, or watching so you know fans are an important part of the story and dubs of course as a player uh straddled the the kind of revolution you know he was there with uh, bef- uh before hoddle and then you know after hullet so he's a really good person to talk to that's excellent yeah he he was great actually he came out with some, some he had some great stories about um you know things like diet and you know that he would eat junk food. They were, everybody would eat junk food until Glenn Hoddle came along. Um, and you're right; he he did straddle that whole um, that sort of journey. So, you know, he was he, he talked about the car park when he first he first joined Chelsea. You know, and the cars are fairly modest, and then you know by the end, you know, you're talking BMWs and Mercedes. And he, he came up with this great story about how I think it's when he first got into the first team he went and bought a a BMW and just as he'd bought it, Glenn Hoddle came to him and said, now, just because you're in the first team, don't get ideas above your station and go and buy a flash car. (laughs) So he said he couldn't take it back to the dealership. So what he used to do is he used to park it at the far end of the car park and walk all the way to the changing rooms, hoping that Glenn didn't see this flash new car. Well, I'm reminded of Goodfellas and the couple that went out and bought the flash car. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I think he couldn't quite believe what he did sometimes, didn't he? Because from that story he told, Andy, I can't remember the details. It was the Real Madrid game. Oh yes, was, was it? The, I can't remember what. what was Super that? Cup. Super Cup. Yeah. Yes. Super Cup in ninety eight, August ninety eight. After the Super Cup, him and I think Jody Morris. I think he said. Yeah, Jody um, Morris decided that they, you know, didn't didn't swap shirts on the pitch. They didn't quite get around to it, so they went over to the Real Madrid uh, dressing room and knocked on the door, and the kit man came out and they said. Yeah, you know, here's our shirts. We'd, we'd like to swap them. And he goes, yeah, yeah, fine. And he goes in and they were wondering, like, who are we going to get? Who are we going to get? You know, could be so-and-so, could be so-and-so. Two minutes later, the kit man opens up, just gives, opens the door, gives them the shirts back and went, no. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody That's wanted brilliant. them. That is brilliant. <laughs> I thought that was like fans, isn't it? Trying to get something yeah. signed. And I thought, uh, <laughs> and, um, but another thing is that it's quite supporter driven. You've you've yeah. interviewed a lot of supporters who can talk about it in kind of real time, you know, and the emotion and everything that was attached to it. Um, 
do you think that when all these changes that you're talking about were happening in the game, did supporters have enough of a voice while all of this this was happening? I mean, I would have thought a lot of people are talking about it as, you know, passively, it's happening to us. We didn't really have any effect on any of this, did we? All we could do was observe and stand in the and sit in the stands and cheer and boo and whatever you know it's a, it's a good point um because you know obviously remember this time quite vividly and there's a there's a clip we've kept in the film and um, well there's a few few little bits to look out for but one of them is um 1988 and john motson talking about the prices going up and saying it's now three pounds to stand <laughs> yeah so I, I do remember, you know, as a fan, I do remember that, you know, suddenly when the Taylor report came in, the, you know, plastic seats were just bolted onto existing terracing and the prices went up and up and up and up. So I think that, yeah, that's quite shocking when you see that. Um, you realise how it was affordable. And if you look, you know, how many years on we are now is, you know, people are being priced out. Um, you know, match day tickets, if you just turn up on the gate, are you know, hugely expensive now. I mean, ridiculously so. I mean, I've got a season ticket, but friends of mine who can't make every game, but, you know, they make a weekend of it. Um, if they take their kids, then, you know, it's it's an arm and a leg. Well, Andy, as well, on, on that thing, on one of the archive, I can't remember what year this would be, but it's got the, the section, but it's got the boys section, and it's yeah. 70p. That's right. Used to be fifty p. It's not boys and yeah. girls, just boys. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. That's changed. <laughs> it's seventy p. You know. By the way, on on prices, don't forget that when Ken Bates was told that the price rises he'd introduced uh, put Chelsea on a par with Manchester United or Old Trafford prices, he quipped, "Yes, but think what you save on the train fare." <laughs> <laughs> Old Trafford used to be one of the cheapest grounds, didn't it? Uh, Chelsea did. Chelsea, Chelsea was a walk-up ground. This is why Stamford yeah. Bridge was nine times the uh, had the biggest crowd uh, home attendance over this over the season and broke records, you know, for years and years because it was a a walk-up ground, the same as Old Trafford, and that's yeah. why you know, as you were saying, Andy, sometimes you saw fifty people. You'd go, you'd turn up to a game in the seventies or eighties, yeah, and um, you wouldn't know how many the away lot would bring, you know, you're thinking Sheffield United, they're not doing very well at the moment, but they're quite loyal. Maybe you get a few hundred uh, and they'd turn up with their balloons and <laughs> the rest of it, you think, well, that's that's quite impressive. But you, it wasn't like, you know, it didn't say the allocation for away supporters is 3,000 or 1,700 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it was just whoever turned up. Now, guys, neither of you support Chelsea. <laughs> Cads, you're Forest fan and your team is Leicester, Andy. Yeah. So, but both of these sides have benefited recently from major investment. So, do you think you understand uh, through the Chelsea, the club, and the fans more about what happens when this sort of thing occurs? <laughs> it's yeah. early days for me. It's been a long, long time since we've spent any money. Um, I, I tell you what, Gary, I'll, I'll answer that question at the end of the season if we're still up. If we go down, then no, I don't understand it at all. Um, but yeah, I mean. I think the one thing that strikes me about this, it, it just never ends, does it? It's never enough. It's just never enough. I mean, you know, we spent more than most clubs this this, this year. I think 100, almost come up to 160 million this season. It, it's still not enough. You know, and that's quite shocking. You know, you're realising how much you have to spend just to stand still. And we're showing yeah. even then it might not be enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
but but Gary, to answer your question, yeah, I I remember when we got bought by uh, King Power and the ties. We were in the championship, and it was the equivalent of winning the lottery. So for a championship club, Leicester spent an awful lot of money early on in their in their in their reign. So we had um, Sven Goran Eriksson as manager, and you know the brief was promotion immediately. So you know we were going out and buying these Premier League players on loan mostly. Um, you know, it didn't work out and, you know, Sven got the sack, of course. Um, but yeah, at that time on a, a much smaller scale in the championship, yeah, suddenly you, you're a rich club and you've got money and, you know, you're expected to, you know, success is expected straight away. And then if it doesn't happen, then the manager goes. Um, so yeah, so we went through a period of that and then the things calmed down and Nigel Pearson took over and there was a more sort of measured approach, which fortunately, you know, paid off. I was in the press room when he, told that supporter that he was a an ostrich an ostrich yeah <laughs> that was pretty bad pretty poor behavior but he was impressive Pearson apart from that um can I just ask also generally I mean this is not as you say this is the story of English football in the 90s mm. so has working on this changed your perspective on the whole 90s gig you know the Taylor Report Euro 96 uh you know the whole new ball game all of that stuff have you changed your views I think well I, when you look when you when you look back at these things it's just how incremental that changes you know it doesn't happen all in once but and you know at the time you don't really spot the theme I don't think many people are sitting there thinking wow it's all changing and this is going to happen but you can see the little building blocks that that lead to it you know whether it's the Taylor Report whether it's Euro 96 and what that did in terms of people who went to games, you know, it's about whether football grounds became more welcoming because we, we talk, you know, in the film about race and, you know, the issues around race with Chelsea as well. Yeah, and about how that was addressed with certain players and what, you know, the impact Rude Hullet had, mm-hmm. you know, actually that's one probably thing I, I didn't appreciate looking back. Was yeah. Just what an impact that man had on the club. And yeah. I was actually, funny enough, I was Completely. at that press conference when, when he was unveiled. But I never, you know, and he wasn't, We I remember thinking he's just this huge world star, but don't think I appreciated what an impact that had on the club and still does today, really, because that, that's what made you almost, you know, cosmopolitan overnight, you know. Yeah, almost likeable. <laughs> it is still one of my proudest moments as a Chelsea fan. Signing Rudolph. Really? Yeah. 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 Even before he kicked a ball, just having that man represent us. Yeah. Who, who would be the equivalent now then? Who who would be the person who would do that for Chelsea fans now? Well, if, if we signed someone now, who who would it be? Um that's difficult. It, it, my take is there wouldn't be anyone. It's because he came into such a flat place, such a sort of a, yeah. a huge amount of mediocrity. In fairness, if we didn't get Hoddle, there's no way we would have got Hullet. So the Hoddle one was really probably the more important. But I think whoever we signed now, you know, Mbappe, Neymar, that wouldn't have the same impact because yeah. of where we are now. It's exactly yeah. as Andy was saying at the beginning about the, this documentary that you've done, Poundland, uh, the battle for Stamford Bridge. You're, took, you're looking at the context, the ups, the downs, and the reasons why uh, things were more powerful because of what had gone before. I, I think... To answer that question, I think looking back now, it was a real sweet spot. So you recognise that. So the the good things about the you know the game traditionally as we knew it, you still recognise it, and a lot of the good things were still there, like the walk up, 
and the fact that the camaraderie and you could you know you could stay you know stand or sit with your friends um it wasn't all ticketed um but it was shedding some of the the you know the darker things were going yeah definitely. um and just and maybe it was because i i moved to london in 93 so whether it, there was just a sense of hope and change in the mm-hmm. air and I, I don't think i'm looking you know through rose tinted spectacles no. there, i think there really was optimism after what had gone you know politically had gone before and then there was this cultural renaissance and i think football was part of that and then obviously euro 96 and i i remember people euro 96 as we all do people who wouldn't ordinarily be interested in football suddenly became interested in football and that was a positive in, in my opinion um you know i know there was the harry enfield about new fans and all the rest of it <laughs> but but it um i know i think there was i think that sort of mid 90s period was um i think it was glorious actually in many ways now as you know we are under new ownership so how do you guys see how the the new Chelsea owners, what their approach is going to be to fit in with all this history? Well, I mean, I guess the first thing is they wouldn't be here unless Bates and Harding were there yeah, first. Very good point. You know, without um, setting the, whatever you think of either the people, without those two guys, you know, there probably wouldn't have been an Abramovich. I'm sure he probably would have gone mm. somewhere else. Mm. Um, and then you wouldn't have Tom Bowley and the rest of the people there. So... Um, whether I like it or not, it's an important part of of the club and the history of the club and, and to get you to where you are now. What they do up from here on in is fascinating. What happens if you don't well, quite likely you're not going to qualify for the Champions League? Oh, yeah, no, that, that's because we're going to win it. <laughs> we're going for number three, boys. That's what we're doing. No, two, I, I think two is enough for any club. <laughs> of course. Fair, fair. Say that to a Forest fan or a Villa fan. That's the thing. <laughs> well, look. Um, so the documentary, we'll 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 flag it up properly in a minute. Just so, so I'll just pause for a second. Just we're running out of time. Um, so um, maybe we should just. Uh, what we'll do is we'll record properly the next bit uh, about where we talk about when it's going out. And if there's anything that you want to say finally uh, to add to what you've, what's going on that we may have missed out that you think we should include, just say it now in or, the last or, couple or, or of minutes. Or to sell it. Yeah. I, I suppose from, from my point of view, you touched on it earlier about making it um, appealing to non-Chelsea supporters. But I think um, the key is it's, uh, it's an entertaining watch. Um, we've tried to make it as entertaining and it, it there is a lot of context in terms of references, cultural references and, you know, sport and society in wider parts. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, I think fans will get something from it. I think, uh, yeah, it's a, you know, musically, there's a, there's a, it's good watch from a music perspective as well. So, and um, yeah, and just seeing some of that footage, you know, from the 70s, 80s and through the 90s is, is fantastic to see. The surroundings and the context of how that game was played is 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 wonderful. Brilliant. Yeah, I'd say you know, there's not many films where you get the likely lads, Blur, uh, <laughs> Rude Hullet, Tony Blair, and a few <laughs> others featuring, but you're gonna get all of that in this. Actually, there is one thing just to add. The the interviews with Ken Bates are laugh out loud funny. <laughs> you know, whatever your opinion is, he is very charismatic on camera, yeah. and some of the some of the things his unfiltered comments are laugh out loud. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. I'm really looking forward to this seeing this documentary, and uh, we'll give the details in just a moment. Right stuff. Thanks, gents. Rick, I thought that was terrific, and I love speaking to these guys because they're proper football fans. They know their onions, but 
as proper football fans, you just get the sense that they have a lot more empathy because they can understand the sort of things that we've been through and can see the effect it had. They're almost saying that what happened to us was like a, a microcosm for English football generally. Absolutely. They're, not, they're really great people as well. And it was fascinating to see how, see the journey that they went on as I was sort of talking them through various parts of this story and to see how they came to really appreciate how central Chelsea were to the whole story of English football evolving in the 90s and all these incredible changes that were were happening in the game in, in this country and um, but also how they set everything into that appreciation of the football fan uh, so yeah really excellent and to reiterate Poundland the Battle for Stamford Bridge is initially showing on BT Sport in the UK after the second leg match against Dortmund on Tuesday 7th of March and BT Sport is actually merging with Warners and rebranding as TNT in the summer in the UK but watch out wherever you are in the world watch out for screenings on that network TNT because maybe they'll pick it up and hopefully they will because I think it's going to be an absolutely entertaining and informative watch for all Blues fans, so check it out. You've been listening to the famous CFC podcast with me, Gary Barone, and him, Rick Glanville, with very special thanks to our splendid guests, Cash the Howell and Andy Wells. Now, if you like the show, please subscribe and spread the word. We'll be back next week, and in the meantime, come on, you Blues. Um, please, come on, you Blues. Blues.